are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. Very pleased you could join me today on our YouTube live stream. My name is David Guzik. And on Thursday afternoons, whenever I am able to, I come here for a live question and answer time. And so I'm glad that you could join me. Uh, The way we normally do this is I begin with a question that I've collected either from the YouTube comments or maybe from Facebook or maybe an email. So I begin with a question of my own choosing, and then we go on and talk about whatever questions you want to bring in the live chat, the chat window that's on the side. You can write your question, or your comment. I'll respond to it the very best I can. If, by any chance, you ask more than one question, that's fine. But I do want to say that I'll try to get to other questions before I get to the second questions from individuals. So very pleased that you could join me. And let's take a look at our lead question here this afternoon, which is simply to say this. Did Jesus say that we are gods? And this question comes from David, not from me, from another man named David. He says this. I just got out of a Zoom Bible study. One of the men used John chapter 10, verse 33, to say that we are gods and will share in the divine. I've read that before and didn't understand what it meant. However, his interpretation didn't seem right. What does John 10.33 mean, and why does Jesus say, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are God's. Why does he call it your law and not God's law, or the law of Moses? Thank you. Well, David, I think that's a great question, and something that brings up something that we talk about from time to time, this reference not only that Jesus made regarding uh, the statement, you are gods, in John chapter 10, but also in the scripture that Jesus referred to when he made that statement. And the scripture that Jesus referred to in making that statement is found in Psalm 82. So let's take a look at a few of these here. First of all, I want to begin at John chapter 10, starting at verse 30, to get a little bit of context. Here, Jesus declares his unity with God the Father. Here we go, John chapter 10, beginning at verse 30. Jesus speaking here, and he says, I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father, For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. We have in verse 30, one of the most significant statements Jesus made that indicates to us his deity and the nature of his deity. Jesus said in verse 30, I and my Father are one. Now, notice this. I and my Father means that the Father and the Son are not the same person. There is a distinction to be made between the Father and the Son. But when Jesus said, I and my Father are one, it means that the Father and the Son are equal in nature. They are equal in essence, that is, what they truly 
are. Now, when Jesus said this in verse 30, look at the response from the Jewish rulers at that time, the, the elite, if you will, among the Jewish people. Verse 31, we read, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. The fact that the religious leaders considered the statement Jesus made in verse 30, I and the Father one, they considered that statement to be blasphemy. And this proves that Jesus spoke of much more than a unity of purpose and a unity of will. Friends, all the prophets of the Old Testament, you could say that they had a unity of purpose and a unity of will with Yahweh, with God the Father. But Jesus goes far beyond that. He does not have merely a unity of purpose and will. He is God. They understood what Jesus said perfectly. They were wrong in wanting to stone him, but, but they understood what he said. And they clarify it here in verse 33, where they say, because you being a man, make yourself God. Again, these Jewish rulers of Jesus's day clearly understood what uh, other groups, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, and others seem to miss, that Jesus clearly claim to be God. Now, we get to verse 34, and this really contains the aspect that we wanted to get to relevant to Dave's question. Here is uh, the aspect relevant to David's question in Jesus's response, starting in verse 34. We read this. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him Therefore, they sought again to seize him, that is Jesus, but he escaped out of their hand. So here we go back to verse 34, where it says that Jesus answered them. Now, the religious leaders surrounded Jesus. Verse 24 in John chapter 10 speaks of them surrounding him. It says, then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, then they also held rocks to stone him to death. In verse 31, we read that they took up stones again to stone him. So they're surrounding them with rocks in his hands. And I love this. Jesus didn't panic at this moment. He certainly didn't run away. He stopped them with the power of his word. He answered them, these religious leaders of his day, he answered them the way an educated rabbi would speak to other educated rabbis. And what does he do? He appeals to the law of God. Here's what he says, verse 34. Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? Now, first of all, let's deal with this aspect of the question that David uh, gave to us. He said, what does it mean by it is written in your law? Well, Jesus was just simply pointing out that this was their written revelation from God. Sometimes the term law 
is used in a narrow sense, referring to the Mosaic law and those passages in the Old Testament that give us the Mosaic law. Other times, that word law is used in a bit more expansive sense to speak of the first five books of the Bible, which we would call the Pentateuch. Uh, in traditional Judaism, it's called the Torah, the law, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. But then there are many other places in the Bible where the term law is used in a general way of God's revelation as a whole, what we wouldn't call the entire Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. It's used this way also in John chapter 12, verse 34, in John chapter 15, verse 25. It's a common usage. Jesus is referring to their Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, so to speak, and he says, is it not written in your law? This is yours. <laughs> it's your law. Not that it came from the Jewish people, but it was entrusted to them. It was revealed through them. It was something that they held on to as a precious possession. There was a very real sense that it was their law, the law that they had embraced, the law that they at least claimed to honor and observe. Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's. Now here, Jesus is making a reference to Psalm 82, where judges were referred to as God's Elohim, because in their office, they determined the fate of other men. There's a popular teacher out there today, uh, Michael Heiser, I believe is his name, and he teaches that the gods of Psalm 82 were not human judges, but they were spiritual beings of power and authority, something like we might call angels or demons, um, but they were not human, and it's speaking to something different altogether. I would have to say I respectfully agree with Michael Heiser's uh, approach on this, I believe from what it says in Psalm 82, from what Jesus refers to here in John chapter 10, and then also in passages like Exodus chapter 21, verse 6, and Exodus chapter 22, verses 8 and 9, we have a pattern of God calling earthly judges gods or Elohim, not in a moment saying that they are equal to him. That's not the idea but that they have God-like authority. And think about it. Does not a human judge have God-like authority? Does not, in many cases, a human judge have the authority to say whether or not a person lives or dies, whether or not a person is rich or poor because of a fine they may assess them, whether or not a person has freedom or is imprisoned. Many ways you can see where there is an analogy between a human judge and lesser gods, Elohim used in the plural there. So Jesus is saying, is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. God refers to human judges as Elohim in Psalm 82. Now here's Jesus's reasoning in verse 35 of John chapter 10. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came. 
Again, these were human beings to whom the word of God came. They did not originate the word of God. They did not deliver the word of God. They were recipients of the word of God, just as much as the people Jesus first spoke to. These words in John chapter 10, the religious leaders of his day. Here's the reasoning of Jesus. If God gave these unjust judges the title gods because of their office, why then do you consider it blasphemy that I call myself the son of God in light of the testimony that I give and my works give? Here's what we need to understand. And David, we're getting to your question most pointedly right here. Jesus did not take the statement, you are gods in Psalm 82, and apply it to all humanity or to all believers. The use of gods in Psalm 82 was a metaphor. And Jesus spoke of that metaphor to expose both the ignorance and the inconsistency of his accusers. Matter of fact, it's fascinating when you go and study it in Psalm 82. Not only does Jesus speak, uh, quoting Psalm 82, which refers to these human judges and say, you're, you're like gods, you, you metaphorically have this godlike power, yet the whole tone of Psalm 82 is to confront these human judges and call them to account for their lack of dispensing justice. That's exactly what Psalm 82 is all about. They had not done their job as human judges well. And so Jesus says, you will be liable for judgment. That's what Psalm 82 says, Jesus quoting Psalm 82. So again, why did Jesus make reference of this to here? Again, to communicate this idea that if God gave unjust judges the title gods because of their office, then these people need to be a little more open to the idea that Jesus can claim to be the Son of God in light of his own testimony and the testimony of the works that Jesus did. So let's understand this. We are not gods, not human beings in general, even though we would say in general human beings are made in the image of God. We are not gods, nor are believers gods. But in Jesus Christ, believers, those who are born again by God's Spirit, we are highly privileged beings. Think of all that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. We are rescued from sin and death and granted everlasting life. We are adopted into God's family. We are being transformed, conformed into the image of Jesus Christ himself. We are made kings and priests unto our God. We are seated in heavenly places with Jesus Christ. We are co-workers with Jesus Christ, given the privilege of sharing in his work. And one day, we will be glorified, and we will even sit in judgment of angelic beings, perhaps both faithful and, for certain, fallen angelic beings. So it is true, in Jesus Christ, we as believers, we are greatly privileged, 
but we are not gods. You see, there is divine being. That's what God is. And there is human being. That's what we are. Humanity is made after the pattern of the divine, but they are not the same. And human does not become divine. So, David, I hope that answers the question there for you. Uh, I think it's a good question touching both on what Jesus said in John chapter 10 and on what is written for us in Psalm 82. Now, with that answered, let me go on to our uh, side chat questions. The first one comes from Tyler. He says, is Paul encouraging us to sing in tongues according to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 15? How would you use your prayer language in a song? Should we be doing this regularly in our private time with the Lord? Well, the verse that Tyler is making reference to, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 15, says simply this. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Now, traditionally, in charismatic or in Pentecostal circles, they have understood what it mentions there in verse 15. To pray with the Spirit is to pray using the gift of tongues, as is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and especially in chapter 14. By the way, if you're interested in this whole issue of the gift of tongues, I have a video about this on my YouTube channel. Take a look at it. But the traditional charismatic or Pentecostal approach is to say, to uh, pray in the Spirit is to pray in tongues. To sing in the Spirit is to sing in tongues. Tyler, I'm going to give you my take on this. I agree that the phrase, pray in the Spirit, includes praying with the gift of tongues, but it does not mean only praying with the gift of tongues. If a person prays led by and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there's a very real sense in which we can say they are praying in the Spirit. If a person sings praise and honor to God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and in a truly spiritual way, we can say that they are singing in the Spirit. Now, could it include what people often refer to, again, in Pentecostal or charismatic circles, as singing in the Spirit or singing in tongues? Well, all I can say is this is a fairly experiential answer. I suppose that if a person can pray in tongues and it is the legitimate exercise of a gift of the Spirit, which, by the way, there are many Christians who disagree with that. And that's a question for another time. Look at my video if you want to know more about my opinion on that. Just as much as a person may pray in the gift of tongues, so as well they could sing with the gift of tongues. So I don't think that this encompasses all of it but certainly it includes it. So this would certainly be somebody using their gift of tongues with a melody in a melodic way, something that goes along with a song or a tune. And whether or not we should be doing this regularly in our private time with the Lord, again, I would just simply go back to this. 
the main essence of the gift of tongues and the purpose for that gift is so that we can communicate with God on a level that goes beyond our intellect. And whenever you feel the need for that, use the gift of tongues if God has so given you that gift. Whether that has to do with praise, and it might have to do with song, whether it has to do with prayer for yourself, a petition you might make known to God, whether it has to do with intercessory prayer, praying for somebody else. When you are praying and you feel stretched beyond the limits of your own understanding of mind, that's when we use the gift of tongues as it says that he who prays in an unknown tongue prays, speaks not unto man, but unto God. It is a tool of communication for the believer to use in reference to God, not in reference to others. So it is absolutely fine to use it in private devotions. And if God would so lead, one should feel free to do that. Hope that helps you, Tyler. Let me go on to another question here. Uh, Christian asks, hello, Pastor David. On Mark chapter 5, verse 6, with the demon-possessed man ran towards Jesus and started worshiping him, was this the man or the demons that worshiped Jesus? Christian, that's a very interesting question. I got to say, I don't know that I have ever directly considered that question before. But again, your reference is to Mark chapter 5, verse 6, where a demon-possessed man bows down before Jesus and worships him. Your question is, was it the man worshiping Jesus or was it the demonic spirits possessing the man that worshiped Jesus? And I would be more inclined to answer that it was the man worshiping Jesus. There seemed to be something of degrees of demonic possession. Demonic possession, as it is classically understood in the scriptures, is not merely demonic influence on a people. Hey, listen. Anytime you are tempted by the devil and his agents, you are experiencing some level of demonic influence. If there was no influence, there'd be no temptation. But demonic possession is different. It's not just influence, it's control. And it seems that there can be varying degrees of control. There are people that we see in the scriptures who are demonically possessed yet they do not seem to be completely under the control of the demonic spirit. Perhaps that control uh, becomes more and then becomes less. Uh, perhaps it's ramped up at some times and backed off at other times. So I, I would more naturally conclude that it was this man who was bowing down and worshiping before Jesus, and whatever demonic spirits possessed him at that moment were not very pleased with what the man was doing. But that's how I would see it. Again, we have to be a little bit careful. The scriptures don't really answer this question for us directly, but we get this idea in general from the scriptures that it is not in the business or the nature of demonic spirits to worship Jesus and to glorify him. Any recognition of honor and worship they would give towards Jesus would be forced. It would be coerced on their part. It would not be done willingly, so to speak. Hope that helps you there, Christian. Next question comes from Jose, who says, could a Christian miss the rapture if he or she is living in sin? Your thoughts, please. Okay, Jose, that's a great question. And I want you to know 
that believers have had different opinions on this. Okay, I, I need to give the disclaimer anytime I talk about things having to do with eschatology, is that there is a wide divergence of opinion on these topics within the family of God. And there are some people who pretty much mock the whole idea of the rapture as it is popularly considered. Well, I won't deal with the mockers right now. That's another subject for another time. But I'll just simply say this. What you are referring to is what is sometimes known as the conditional rapture idea. The idea that people will be raptured, but only on a conditional basis. In other words, if they are right enough with God. If they are a believer and perhaps saved, but not walking or living in a way that glorifies God, then maybe they'll miss the rapture. I am inclined against that thinking, Jose. I understand there's some passages of scripture that people quote in support of it. Most notably, where Jesus spoke, pray that you would be counted worthy to escape the judgment to come. And the idea of worthy there is, well, some people will be worthy and some people won't. Okay, I, I really don't think that that's the idea that it's getting at there. My inclination to say that everybody who is truly in Christ, no matter what the level is of their spiritual maturity or their personal holiness, if they are saved, if they are in Christ, then they will be taken in the catching away of the church that's described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So, Jose, that's my perspective on it. And uh, I have a hard time believing in what's known as the conditional rapture idea uh, for many reasons, but I'll, I'll just leave it at that for right now. Going on, Ray asks the question, Hello, Mr. Guzik. One question today. What is your take when it comes to dancing in a party? Not praise dancing, but dancing with worldly music. Can a Christian do that? Well, Ray, let me just say, uh, speaking uh, in just the way you ask the question, can a Christian do that? Listen, some Christians can dance and other Christians can't dance. They don't have the rhythm or the coordination to dance. And so they just can't do it. Others do have the rhythm and coordination to do it. I would put myself in the can't dance category. But anyway, that's another subject. Your real question isn't if a Christian is able to do it, but whether they could do it and truly glorify God. Ray, I'm going to tell you, I don't think that there is one universal answer to that question. It would be easy to say dancing is always prohibited. Any kind of dancing that is not directly connected to the praise and worship of God is prohibited. Or it might be easier to say, dancing is always okay, no matter what, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the music. But I think that this very much connects with many, many different aspects. Number one, it connects with um, the individual and their own walk with God. Would dancing in that situation or the environment in which they would dance, would it make them um, susceptible to other sins? Would it lead them down in a sinful path? Maybe yes, maybe no. Um, what does dancing mean to that particular believer? Is it something that is something of an idol in their life? Whom are the people with which they associate when they do this activity? Are these people a demonstrably bad influence upon them? 
what is the effect of that environment? Okay, you see, there's question after question that can differ according to the music, differ according to the environment, differ according to the people with whom it is done, and most of all, differ according to the spiritual maturity and particular liberty of that individual Christian, as well as their own family or pastor or church congregation and all the rest of it. So I, I would just simply say, it's impossible to give a universal answer for that question. I would say this, pray about it. And if you can do it genuinely, honoring God and praising God, and I'm not saying this in regard to dancing, I I'm regarding in most anything that we do. I say most because some things are obviously morally compromised. But then there's other activities that people might do that it might be sin for one believer. They cannot do it in faith. It leads them into all kinds of ungodly associations and down ungodly paths. But for another believer, it could be absolutely fine, and they have the liberty in Jesus Christ to do it. This is something I believe that falls into that category. Look, I don't mean to scandalize anybody, but I have some dear Christian friends who have had wonderful evangelistic work out on the streets. I've seen them do this in Europe to great effectiveness with swing dancing. They got together a group of young people, some of them not so young, but they got together a group of people who, who just learned how to swing dance and they loved doing that. And they would go out and they would pray out in the midst of a, of a crowd. They would put on the music. They would begin dancing. They draw other people and they would use it as a, a vehicle, a means, a connection with which to preach the gospel to people. Look, I, I got to say, I approved of that wholeheartedly. I thought it was good and glorifying to God. But would I approve of every context of dancing? Certainly not. So again, it's a complicated question meriting, I believe, this extended answer. Thank you for that question, Ray. Allow me to move on to a question from Daniel. Daniel says, Hi, Pastor David. What do you think is the strongest argument for the literal millennial kingdom? Daniel, I think that there are many strong arguments for it. But to me, it seems simply to be the most plain, straightforward reading of the scriptures. When God describes what things will be like on the millennial earth, it speaks in very concrete terms. It doesn't speak with the same, more in a metaphorical direction uh, wording that we find when heaven or eternity beyond is spoken of. So I would just say that it is the most plain, straightforward reading of the scriptures. When it tells us that certain things will happen in this age to come, we believe that it will happen. In addition, I believe that the millennium, as it's described in God's plan, has a distinct place and purpose before the great white throne judgment. Now, I don't believe that the book of Revelation is presented to us in a strictly chronological way, but it doesn't mean that I think that there's no chronological order in the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, we see that this period that we know of as the millennium described in Revelation chapter 20, 
that comes before what we would call the great white throne judgment, the final judgment. And this is why that's important. God deemed that it was important to give humanity a thousand years of a nearly perfect environment. Why do I say nearly perfect? Because it is perfect as an environment can be with fallen human beings in it. Righteousness will be perfectly enforced and dispensed in that day under the rule of Jesus Christ and the subrule of all his servants. After a thousand years of the best environment possible on planet Earth, mankind still rebels the first real chance he gets. That demonstrates an important principle before the final judgment. That at the final judgment, no one can ultimately blame their environment. They can't say, well, no wonder I was such a sinner. Look at where I grew up. No wonder I was such a sinner. Look at the family I came from. No, I'm not trying to say that where a person grows up or their family that they come has no influence on them for good or for bad. Certainly it does. But ultimately, we don't sin because of our environment we sin because we are sinners, inherited from Adam and chosen all on our own. That principle will be irrefutably established before the great white throne judgment. That is another, in my mind, very significant argument for the millennium as something literal. Hope that helps you there, Daniel. Let me go on to a next question from Bina, who says... Can you please explain how come there was evening and morning on the first day of creation and why the Bible marks evening and morning as a day and not the other way around? Well, Bina, that's a great question. Here, especially in the Western world, we mark the beginning of the day with dawn, notably when the sun comes up in the morning. For us, that's the end of the night and the beginning of the day. And our day ends in darkness. I just find it fascinating that in the Hebrew mentality, and to be truthful, I don't know how many other cultures adopt the same thinking, but in the Hebrew mentality, the day begins in darkness and ends in light. That's just the Hebrew conception. I'm not saying it's wrong for us to regard day and night the way we do in the Western world. But it is important for us to understand that crucial distinction. In our conception, the day begins in light and ends in darkness. And in the Hebrew, if you want to say at least the Old Testament biblical conception, the day begins in night and it ends in day. That's a beautiful idea, I think. And it's just a different ordering of the same thing. So I think that's a fascinating thing. Uh, continuing on, Jane says, David, can you comment on the arguments against the pre-tribulation rapture based on Matthew chapter 24, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and 4, Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, and Joel chapter 2 verse 31 and more? I just watched a movie about seven pre-trib uh, pre problems quoted you in it. Well, I'm interested to hear that there's a video out there that quotes me in it. Listen, um, let me say, 
just kind of at the outset, Jane, I, I can't go through and answer all of these different arguments. You can look at the Enduring Word website, and if it's not there, it could also be on the YouTube channel. Everything that is on the YouTube channel is also on the Enduring Word website. What I want to communicate to you is that I have a specific message why I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture, e even though I understand that people who really love Jesus and are really serious about God's word may have a different opinion. Nevertheless, politely speaking, I'd say that I think they're wrong. And I think that the rapture will happen, to get sort of technical in my speaking here, before the 70th week of Daniel, before this period that in general we call the Great Tribulation, but actually the last half of it will have much more of that concentrated tribulation. Okay, that's something to discuss at another time. Jane, I give you this principle. Every end times scenario, um, premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, pre-wrath, post-tribulation in regards to the rapture, every conceivable end times scenario has problems. I don't claim that there are zero exegetical problems with the pre-tribulation rapture conception and the pre-millennial uh, concept in general when it comes to end times. I, I see. I, I can read the Bible. I understand some of the exegetical difficulties in my position, but here's the thing. I also see the weaknesses and the problems of the other positions. And our job as those who rightly divide the word of truth is simply to do this, to say which conception best fits the evidence. N not that it's easy, not that absolutely every question is answered effortlessly and there are no difficult texts to deal with under this concern. No, that's not going to happen when it comes to end times thinking. But which one does the best? Sometimes I say it like this. I know that there are problems with the pre-tribulation rapture conception. I understand that. But I prefer those problems to what I perceive to be the greater problems of the other models or scenarios. So without speaking to every one of these verses, I would just say this. We recognize, and sometimes those who teach the pre-tribulation rapture have done a terrible job in doing this. They have presented it as if it is the birthright of every believer to cruise on into the rapture without any trial or tribulation in their life. That is not what the Bible teaches at all, not in any way whatsoever. We need to understand that the Bible teaches us that there may be significant persecution, significant trial, significant tribulation that believers may experience before this great catching away of the church mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, yet is not part of what we consider to be the great tribulation, the outpouring of God's wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world. We may be persecuted, but we won't be under the wrath of God that he reserves for a Christ-rejecting world. 
uh, that we read about in the book of Revelation and elsewhere. So, uh, Jane, maybe I'll watch that movie. Maybe I'll see, you know, more of their particular argument. But but again, th that's the general response I'd give to you. And I hope that's helpful for you. OK, let me move on here. West says, hi, Pastor David, in John chapter 17, verse 21, what is this saying? And can it also connect with Acts chapter 4, verse 12? OK, well, let me connect to these different passages here. First of all, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. I'll mark that. And then um, John chapter 17, verse 21. John 17, 21. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Powerful, isn't it? Uh, John chapter 17, verse 21, part of the great prayer that Jesus prayed in the upper room with his disciples. And in that particular verse from that wonderful prayer, Jesus asks the Father that there would be great unity among his people, both now and in generations to come. Then in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, reread this. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given under among men by which we must be saved. Well, again, uh, Wes, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I don't exactly get the connection you're making other than to say this, that there is true unity in Jesus Christ true unity under his name. And his is the name that brings salvation to us. Matter of fact, I want you to consider that salvation is contained within the very name of Jesus. We say Jesus. You could also say the name Joshua because the names Jesus and Joshua are the same name. And so when they call Jesus Joshua or Yahshua, that name means Yahweh is salvation. There is salvation truly in his name. And so when we read in John chapter 17, again, verse 21, um, that they may all be one in you, Father, and are in me, and I in you, that they may be one, and that the world may believe that you sent me. Well, it's true. God wants his people to be a testimony to the world of the deity and the reality of Jesus Christ because of their unity. And, of course, his is the one name under heaven by which we must be saved. The saving work of God comes through no one else than Jesus Christ. As it says later in the New Testament, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Let me move on to the question from Sono, who says this. Hey, David, I hope all is well. It is. Thank you. I heard recently that the final seven-year period is never called the seven-year tribulation in the Bible. Also, that it is not a period of God's wrath. Can you give your opinion? Well, Sono, I, I made reference to this before, but I can just repeat it. There is a seven-year period marked off in the Bible, which is commonly called the 70th week of Daniel. 
It goes back to the book of Daniel, chapter 9, where God said that there was a period of 70 sevens, seven, 70 periods of seven years appointed for the Jewish people. And the argument that I would make, and not just I, but many who believe like me, not everybody agrees with this, but again, it's, it's my understanding, that of those 70 sevens, 69 of them have been fulfilled. There is one seven-year period remaining. And that will be the last seven years that humanity experiences before the glorious return of Jesus Christ at what we sometimes call the Battle of Armageddon. So having considered that, it is true that that entire seven-year period will not be a time of God's wrath being poured out on earth. But I believe is as you correlate this with the book of Revelation, you'll see that at the halfway point, that point on to the end, it will be a time of great wrath and calamity. Often, we refer to the entire seven-year period as the Great Tribulation. And the thinking behind that is two. First of all, Sometimes it's done because there's indication that in the first three and a half years, there will be great persecution against those who come to faith during that period. Again, as we discussed before, I believe that believers will be caught away, as is mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, at the very beginning or right before that last seven-year period starts. But there will be many people, a multitude that comes to faith in Christ during that period. Those people and the Jewish people will be uh, greatly persecuted during the first three and a half years. So that will be tribulation for believers, so to speak, at least believers who come to faith after that seven year period begins. The last three and a half years will be great tribulation for the entire earth. So. Uh, you could technically just refer to the last three and a half years as the Great Tribulation, the time of God's wrath. Or if you wanted to use a more general way of speaking, you could, maybe it's a little bit sloppy, but you could refer to the entire seven-year period as the Great Tribulation. So I, I hope that clarifies that for you there. Let me continue on. A question from Sal uh, Salai says, Hi, Pastor David. Can you explain about the things, whether or not we should tithe regularly or not? Thanks, and God bless you. Well, Salai, I'll just give you my understanding of this. We should be givers. God is a giver. God is the greatest giver. There's never been a giver like God. That is, you know, undeniable. So we should be givers as well. We should be like our God. We should be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Tithing has more to do with how much we give. Technically speaking, a tithe is 10%. And on that basis, many people give 10% of their income to God and to his work. They know, biblically speaking, that we should be givers. There's no question about that. How much should I give? Well, let's look to the tithe, 10%. Now, I would say 
that tithing as a practice is not emphasized in the New Testament. It's not absent from the New Testament. It's there, but it's not emphasized. It is more emphasized in the Old Testament. But I would just simply ask this. If you're looking for a measure by which you should give, why not make the tithe, the 10%, your goal? Why not say, God helping me, I want to give freely unto God and unto his work on earth what Old Testament saints were required to give? I mean, hasn't God given us more in Jesus Christ than any of the Old Testament saints received under that old dispensation? So I would not preach the tithe as something legalistic for Christians, but I do think that it's a valid goal. And let me say one more thing. I think another reason why the New Testament does not emphasize the tithe, it doesn't ignore it, but it doesn't emphasize it, at least in my estimation. One reason the New Testament does not emphasize the tithe is because there are many Christians who should give more than 10%. We should not regard 10% giving, tithing, as an absolute cap on what we should give. There are many believers to whom God has been very generous, and God would call them to be more generous than giving of a 10%. So, uh, Salai, I hope that helps you, and really that's how I see it. Um, if you go into my commentary and look especially for my comments on 2 Corinthians chapter 9, you'll see a lot of the principles having to do with giving, because that's a chapter that speaks a lot about it. Let me move on to Levy. Levy's question is this. David, how did you become a pastor, and what is it like to lead a church? Levy, I was called to the ministry, to the, the role of being a pastor, uh, because God gave me a desire to feed and to care for the people of God, feeding them spiritually through the word of God, which is something I've done since I was 16 years old, and caring for their needs in a personal one-on-one -on -one way as well. Now, I must say this, God gave me that calling, if it will, that heart, even though, listen, if any individual, myself included, says, I have a pastor's heart. At the same time, we are saying, I want to have more of a pastor's heart. I want to have more of a commitment to feed God's people the spiritual food they need. I want to have more of a commitment to care for their needs. I want to do what a shepherd must do, feed, lead, and protect. That's what a shepherd does. To quote my good friend, Pastor Lance Ralston, feed, lead, and protect. And I believe that those to whom God is called to do that work, God will give them that heart. But it's something that we should always be growing in. Now, you also ask, what is it like to lead a church? Levy, I, I want you to know that I do not at the present time pastor a church. For many years in my ministry, I was a pastor or a lead pastor, senior pastor, whatever it is you might want to call it, um, over three different congregations uh, over the years. And I have to say, my years as a pastor, I am so grateful for, or directly serving as a pastor as a congregation, I'm very grateful for. I still am a pastor. I still believe that I serve and minister unto God's people. 
but I don't do it with the responsibility of leading an entire congregation. What's it like to lead a church? I certainly know what that's like, having done it for many, many years. Leading a church is wonderful, and it is a staggering responsibility all at the same time. Sometimes it feels, being a pastor, um, this is the best job ever. I can't believe that I get to do this. Sometimes it feels like that, being a pastor, lots of times. There's other times where being a pastor feels more like this. There is nothing worth doing this job. This is terrible. I don't know if I can take it. God allows some of both to come into the experience of every godly pastor along the way. So um, I hope that that answers in some way. Okay, um, here we go. A question from Dave who says this. In your Bible notes on Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, who has bewitched you? Your commentary says that the word bewitched was not meant literally. I believe that it was meant literally. Your thoughts. Well, Dave, I would be interested to know. Maybe you can leave a question later on in the comments or, or a comment on this in the comments. I'd be interested a little bit more what you believe at that. that. What I mean is I don't believe that somebody literally cast a spell over the Galatians. Now, you could say that figuratively a spell was cast over them, but not literally, not in the sense of just simply being able to say, here is uh, somebody like a witch or a wizard, you know, conjuring up a spell and casting it over them. That's what I mean by literal in this sense. Now, figuratively speaking, certainly they were bewitched. There was something of a spell over their minds where they were um, very enthralled with this idea of another gospel, something that they should not have gone after. Um, but again, I'd be interested in hearing other viewpoints on that. Please leave something in the comment section a little bit later on when this uh, video is posted. All right, I'm just going to get to a few more questions here on a Thursday afternoon. Uh, Horacio says, um, hi, Pastor David, can you recommend literature on the history of revivals in digital format? Greetings from Peru. Um, Horacio, yes, I can. Um, send me an email and I'll, uh, I'll reference you to some resources. Maybe we'll put them up in the course description here and not in the course description, the video description. You can email me at david at enduringword.com. So uh, email me and I'll turn you on to some uh, digital resources. And then uh, another question from Kristana says, does the devil or his minions have the ability to hear the unspoken thoughts or prayers of believers or unbelievers? <laughs> well, Kristana, that is a great question. It's a question that uh, people often ask. Can the devil or his agents, his minions, let's say a demonic spirit who, so to speak, works under the authority of Satan, can the devil hear my thoughts? Okay, I, I would say this. A, a guy explained it to me like this one time. I thought it was good. He said, listen, if my wife can know what I'm thinking, 
then surely the devil who also observes me all the time can know what I'm thinking. I'm not trying to make a likeness between uh, someone's spouse and the devil. Of course, that's not the point. But by careful, continued observation of a person, it is possible to often be able to predict what they're thinking. So I don't know whether or not the devil can actually read our minds. I think that's a debatable question. I would lean towards saying no, but I do understand this, that the devil and his agents are such expert observers of human nature and constant observers of human nature that uh, they can reliably, not perfectly, but reliably predict what we are thinking. Hope that helps you there, Kristana. Donald says, um, I know we are not to tempt God, but is it a good idea to tempt Satan? Example, come on, Satan, give me your best shot. Donald, no, I would say that that's not wise. If you understand and read in the book of James, where we see that uh, Michael, when he battled Satan, was respectful towards him. He would not rebuke him in his own name, but said, the Lord rebuke him rebuke you and brought a, did not bring against Satan a reviling accusation, as it says there in the book of Jude. Um, I don't think we should be filled with braggadocio or boasting against the devil. We should make it plain that our confidence is in Jesus Christ. H how about something like this? Hey, Satan, in Jesus, you can't touch me. I'm in Jesus, so you can't touch me. As long as the emphasis is always on who Jesus is and the great defense that he is for us, our champion, our savior, then I could see it through. But um, again, I, I think we don't have to be um, overly respectful to the devil, but we never, ever, ever want to give any intimation that we can stand against him in our own strength. Um, okay, let me go over a few more here. Um, T asks the question, the elect will not be saved before the tribulation, but during the tribulation, according to Revelation 7, 14. Okay, T, I understand that verse. And um, I would just say that that refers to those who come to Christ during the tribulation. And I understand not everybody agrees with that. But, but I would just say that refers to people, Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, those who come to Christ during the tribulation. And then uh, you list there, um, Revelation 7, 14. And again, I, I understand that. I, I believe that there is a special blessing, a special category, if you will, given to those people who are what are sometimes called tribulation saints. I don't know if that's the best title for them but those who come to Christ during this last seven-year period. All right, and then the last question from the day comes from my friend Jesper, Jesper Dahl. Jesper, great, nice to hear from you. He says, hi, David, where could we find your video of why I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture? Jesper, I will produce a link to it, and we will put it in the description of this video. Hopefully, it'll be up pretty soon. So again, that's simply it for today. I am so pleased that you could join me for today's question and answer time. I genuinely enjoy these times. I look at my calendar, and by all indications, I will be with you next Thursday as well, God willing, and if we live. 
And I'm looking forward to it as well then. So I'm very pleased that you could join me. God bless you. Again, go to the YouTube channel and look for other content. And I know that like, I'm supposed to be asking you to subscribe or push the like button or click on notifications. Look, if you want to do it, do it. If you like the content here, you know how to get more of it. And uh, I appreciate everybody who does subscribe and who does the notifications. It, it, it's a blessing to minister along with this community that we have on YouTube. So God bless you. See you next Thursday. I'm so glad that we could have this time together. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.